So Matthew 6, we're starting a new chapter. I'll go ahead and mention, uh, I don't think we'll be in Matthew 6 next week. Uh, my desire, we'll see. I have been laboring for the longest time looking for an opportunity to have a short passage, short message, so we can have the Lord's Supper. I'm telling you, I've been laboring for months, and I thought this was the week. And so, sorry, Tim, uh, he's going to shoot me. I didn't promise. I, I said last week, oh, man, I'm going to try. I'm going to do my best. Uh, I'm just going to have to take a week off of Matthew to, for us to focus on the Lord's Supper. Hopefully that's next week. So don't come in with a bunch of sin in your heart. Don't do that ever, but especially next week, okay? But I do want us to introduce Matthew 6. Uh, maybe not a goosebump type sermon today. This is uh, a discipleship type sermon. A passage, we're going to go where the passage takes us. Pretty straightforward. But one we need. And I hope that all of us get something out of it. I find myself needing the words of this passage. And so we want to focus on the first four verses. Shifting gears a little bit, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount, which started back in chapter 5. Now we're chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Would you read those with me? Here we go. I'll read out loud. You trek along, okay? Jesus said... Beware. Taste that. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. That does not mean going first in time. It means beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, in front of other people. But the verse continues, clarifies. Beware of, pra of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Why is that so important? Why is that getting this warning? Jesus says, for then, if you do that, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Apparently this is a big deal. Jesus is saying, you don't want that to happen. So beware. So that's very broad. Verse 1 broad. 2, 3, 4 are specific. And then through verses 18, there's going to be three specific things. Today we'll look at the first one. 2, 3, 4 gets very tight on one of those righteous acts that we might practice that doesn't need to be practiced before men. Verse 2. Thus, so here's the application. Thus, when you give, when you give, to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Why do they do that? That they may be praised by others. Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Past tense. They, that do what verse 2 says, have received their reward. Don't do that. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand, your left hand, know what your right hand is doing. Why is that important? So that your giving may be in secret. What would be the result of that? And your father, well, then no one's going to see. 
Jesus says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's read those four again more quickly this time. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at verse number 1. We want to notice verse number 1 is a general warning about hypocrisy we could even add the word pride it's a general overarching it it encompasses more than the first 18 verses but the first 18 verses are going to break down three particular areas we're going to see the first one but verse one's really broad and it starts off with a key word beware it's a grace view beware be careful take caution be warned give extra care watch out Watch out, what? There's some hidden dangers in doing righteous acts that you may not think about. And they're always lurking. And you may have avoided them at this point, but they may crop up literally 90 seconds later. You've got to be, be, you've got to be careful. Are you giving extra care when you do these things? Watch your heart. So I want us to go into this text today, and we'll look at verse 1 on its own here, very broad, general, a warning against hypocrisy. Can I say a couple of things that this is not? So we could read this, and somebody could take off in the wrong direction, make some wrong conclusions. So first of all, let me say this. Listen carefully. This does not mean that if someone sees you performing an act of righteousness, that you were sinning in it and that you've lost your reward. Hey, man, I saw you doing that. Oh, man! lost it doesn't mean that it's about your heart doesn't mean that and I'll apply that again more specifically when we look at verses 2, 3, and 4 so it doesn't mean you lost it if we did not take 18 weeks to preach through chapter 5 and we just read it like they heard it I believe on a mountainside literally minutes before Jesus says chapter what we call chapter 6 verse 1 go back to chapter 5 and look at verse 16 Go back. Just flip one page back. If you're on a tablet, scroll just up a little bit. Look at chapter 5, 16, because something seems odd. Is, it seems like Jesus is contradicting himself. Well, we want to be clear that Jesus obviously is not contradict. He's not going to say something at one point and literally a few minutes later say the opposite of that, but it could sound that way. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So wait a minute. In the same way as when you you have a light, you don't put a light down low and under a basket. We have our house lights in the ceiling. They're up there high so that they have the greatest effect. You don't put them down low to have the lowest effect. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light, he's talking about the light of your life and the message of your lips, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And yet chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. What, so which is it? 
want to make two quick points. This is not a contradiction. Why? Because we're talking about different actions, and we're talking about, obviously, different motives. Everybody catch that already? These are different actions, and the key, the bigger thing, different motives. That's why he's not contradicting. So without re-preaching chapter 5, go quickly with me. Ready? Christ in chapter 5 is talking about a person whose Christian life gives the effect of salt holding back corruption in an unsaved world that's like a piece of meat that is a dead animal. A dead animal left to itself is going to have corruption, and so this world is going to get more and more corrupt. But we Christians are to live lives that hold corruption at bay, and yes, we're to make them thirsty, and we're also to be adding flavor to this life. And so Christ is saying, live that way in public. Use your words to give spiritual light and illumination to the world around you. So yes, that needs to be public. Chapter 6 is not calling for secret saints. He's talking about two different things. Chapter 5, he's coming off of this. This is a person whose literal inward attitude is, by myself, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing. And this is a person who mourns over their sin. They don't make light of their sin. They don't just put sin off. They deal with their sin as if in a message today and in this text today, if the Lord convicts, they're going to deal with this today. They're not going to put it on a back burner to be dealt with later or it's not that bad. This person mourns over their sin. This person is meek. They don't crush people. They put themselves under people and serve everyone else. This person's heart hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's going to come out. This person is merciful to other people. This person steps into people's lives. They have a pure heart. They're singularly focused on God. They step into people's lives that are warring this way, and they go between trying to be a peacemaker or a person is warring with God, and they're going to lose, and this person steps between them. What Christ is saying, that life, you can't hide it. You cannot hide it. It's like a city on a hill, so let your light shine. Two different types of actions. What he's talking about in chapter 6 are these activities that need to be kept private because they're private spiritual disciplines. So there's public righteousness, and then there's private spiritual disciplines. Don't bring those into the public light. But obviously the biggest difference, that this is not a contradiction, you've already noticed it. Verse 16, look at it again. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, but it's not for you to be praised. It's to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Chapter 6, verse 1, is a denouncing of private spiritual disciplines being brought out into the public for self-glory and vain glory and for the praise of men. Very, very different, so there is no contradiction. So can I say it this way? Righteousness being done before others is not sin until it is done, as the verse 1 says, in order to be seen by them so that you notice me and brag about me, then it becomes sin. Verse number one, one more main thought, a couple of thoughts actually. Look at it again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So I'm not going to make this the main point, but I'm going to make an application. So he's going to get specific to the, the activity of giving. But any of us, twice a week, I have a very public ministry that I feel the Lord has called me to do. And I'm not the only one in the church. Any of you who ever find yourself in a position of publicly serving the Lord, you need to really check your heart that it is not contaminated with pride. That's what Christ is saying to us. So anyone who's on this stage, you have to check your heart before you get up. You have to check your heart during while you're up here. And after you get back down, that you're not doing what you're doing for the praise of people. 
And so whether I'm preaching or someone singing or playing an instrument or greeting someone or teaching a class or serving in that booth back there, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, check your heart. Am I doing this so that people will think more of me or am I honestly doing this for the praise of God? I think without saying it, what Christ is calling all of us this morning is live with this thing we call the fear of God. You say, Jeff, what is the fear of God? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's one of the keys to the Christian life. Here's the fear of God. It's this constant awareness that there is a God and he is very close, very close, and he is watching. Watch, he's not close. No, what'd you do now? That's not the case. He's not lost in a magazine scrolling through Facebook, but I'm close if you need me. He is real. He's very close. He is watching right now. He's right beside. He's all around you looking at you, and he knows your heart, and he cares what you're thinking, what you're doing, what you are. He cares. Live with the fear of the Lord. When we have that, that will far outweigh the fear of man and the concern of man. Because Christ, and again, I'm going to put another note up very, very quickly. Christ is pointing out to us that we have a pride problem. I'll go ahead and say, uh, maybe I shouldn't use the universal, complete term. I dare say, I dare say that all of us have a pride problem. All of us, I dare say, struggle with pride. Probably those who struggle the least with pride just said within themselves, Oh, yes. I have a pride problem. Those who struggle the most probably said, you know, I don't think pride is my problem. You're probably the one who has it the most. Those who have it the least but still struggle, oh, mercy. I need mercy, Lord. I need some grace. I have a serious pride problem. Why is this important? Christ wants us to understand the following. He's warning us. We all have it. Pride makes us care way too much about what other people think. And once we start caring about what other people think, we will actually start living differently when we think someone's watching. We'll behave differently. The way we give may be different. The way we pray may be different. But, oh, somebody's watching. Somebody's listening. Careful how we live. We care too much about what people think when we think they're watching. Do you guys realize, before I go to the second point, there are some men, daddies, here this morning, granddaddies. And you think they're very dignified. But I'm going to tell you, in a private moment of exhilaration and joy, they can look back at their life and they have jumped up and down like a schoolgirl. And they've sung to the top of their lungs in, in their vehicle, just sing, wow, because they're having a good day, something good just happened, they're in a great mood, just singing. They may even jump around and try, frankly, uncoordinated and not very good dance move. Now, they're right now telling themselves, oh, no, my dance moves are really good, but they're not. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about guys who, in a moment of exhilaration, have played the air guitar and the air drum and summoned up their inner Ric Flair. I mean, I'm talking about, you say, who are these guys? They're sitting very near you. I promise you, you think they're dignified, but in their heart, right now, if they're honest, they're going, air guitar, check, air drums, check, inner Ric Flair, check, 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 dance move, check, check, yep, done. You'll never see it because pride. You're not going to see that me. I see a few smiling, actually, by the way, going, yep, yep. But I, nobody will ever know it. Jeff, how do you know so much about this? Point number two. <laughs> Point two. 
Pride will make us care way too much what other people are thinking. So let's get specific on the second point. A specific warning of how not to give. A specific warning how not to give. Look at verse number two again. Thus when you give, give to the needy. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So guys, listen, this is probably the main body of our message today is verse number two. Verses one through 18, Jesus is gonna give us three activities. Listen, he expects these activities to be in our lives. What are they? This is the activity of giving. This is the activity of praying and the activity of fasting. Christ just expects Verse number two, he says, when you give. Do you see that? There's an assumption on the part of Jesus Christ that his people will give. My main message today is not about, hey, grace view, you need to be givers. But this point right here is that point. There may be someone sitting here this morning and their attitude is, I don't have to give. God understands I'm the needy one. I don't have a lot of money. I don't, I don't ever give. I don't have to give. God doesn't expect me to give. If that is you, I would encourage you, keep listening all the way through the sermon and catch one of the passages that we're going to look at at the end and see if the Lord doesn't kind of make clear. Yes, giving is for each of us. It'll be more for some and less for others. But there's an assumption. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy. Verse number 3. Again, But when you give, verse number four, so that you're giving. There is no if you give. So the point being, Christ is giving us three activities, giving, fasting, praying, that if we're not careful, here's the danger, we will take what is supposed to be private, we'll bring it into the public arena for vain glory and self-glory of the self to be done in front of other people with the wrong motive. Be careful. One person I read this week, I don't know that it's accurate or not, they said 15% of what Jesus said in the New Testament has to do with giving. 15%. More than what he said about heaven and hell combined. Jesus talks a lot about giving. And so if someone's sitting here this morning, this message isn't for me, I don't really give, you've got a problem. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, actually chapter 5, verse number 42, he says, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So chapter number six, thus when you give, verse two. Verse three, when you give. Verse four, you're giving. Just implied. It's understood. You'll do this. So this message is mainly for givers. Look at verse two again. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Uh, I don't know if that's literal, guys. I I think... Apparently, this was not a literal practice. No one in modern times has gone back and been able to find a record that has survived that shows this was a normal practice. So apparently, Christ is being figurative. But what's the main point? It's not about a don't blow a trumpet. Somebody can say, well, I wouldn't blow a trumpet. I like trombone. I'm going to blow a trombone or a horn before I get... That's not the point. It's about do you announce your giving? Don't announce your giving. R.T. France made me think a little bit this week when he offered a couple of thoughts. Here's the first one. He says, It is likely that significant donations were publicly announced in the synagogue. And so Christ is talking about this blowing a trumpet. It's probably in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogues, many of them, one temple, but all the different synagogues. Here's a significant contribution that would come in. It would get announced. So guys, I want to talk to you for a second. Ready? Is that a good idea? 
some, a significant contribution comes in, should that be made known? Colleges do it, right? Big gift comes into the college. They're going to announce it, put the person's name on it. Maybe they want a bell tower with their family name on it. Big gift comes into a church. I heard of this, church in Nashville, Tennessee. Like they gave, a person gave like a million dollars and they wanted a big old bell put out front with their name on it. And it kind of strapped the church. I'd hate to be that pastor put in that position. Like, how much are we supposed to spend? I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars for this thing. So this person have a plaque at the bottom. Colleges do it. Christian radio does it. Some of you are like me. You listen to Christian radio. I flip back and forth between a couple of local channels. Well, one's in North Carolina and one's Greenville. And the ones that I listen to, they each have this, I don't know the name of it, share One just had it pretty recently. And I noticed that when someone comes in with a gift, often they'll say, Jeff and Anderson contributed this, and they'll announce it. Or some, such and such a business, it's basically advertising, so they want advertisement-free Christian radio, and so they have these twice-a-year fundraisers, and they announce the contributors. Is that a good idea? I know of a church has a very prominent wall. And on that wall, there are these plates And some of the plates are kind of golden colored and some of the plates are silver colored. And on those plates are people's names. And the gold and the silver differentiates between who gave what amount. And and they have their name on there. And what that shows is who gave money, who gave the most money toward a building project. Is that a good idea? You say, Jeff, it's probably an effective idea. I would agree. Humanly speaking... That is an effective means. Why? Because it probably is going to prey on people's desire to have their gift known. I am not indicting anyone who gives, and lo and behold, the radio station says their name. Well, you gave for the wrong reason. I'm not saying it. Or if someone's name's on a plate, oh, they gave for the wrong reason. Someone gives to a college, they give for the wrong reason. I am not saying 100% of the time that is always wrong. I'm just thinking I don't know that it's a good idea to announce the most significant. Why? Because it tempts people to give with the wrong motive. R.T. France offers another idea as we're thinking of this, not announcing, don't pronounce the trumpet before you're giving France warns, this is not a direct quote, but catch this. He says, giving directly to the needy in a public setting can be dangerous because it can tend to foster an enthusiastic response from the needy person. And if you're kind of anticipating that, inner self may say, well, wait, let me get a few more people here. Here you go. Will that help out? Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. That is so, well, you're welcome. It's the least I could do. Careful in those situations. Don't do that. Don't, you say, Jeff, what if I'm in a situation? I am, I'm either going to give or not, and it's public, and I've got to move. Check your heart. It's always about the heart. The action is not automatically sinful. What is your motive on the inside? Verse number two again. A couple more thoughts, and we'll keep moving. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. R.C. Sproul helps us, because you guys know, we have an idea in our mind what a, what a hypocrite is. I'm sorry about that popping. I'm not sure what that is. I think it has something to do with this part. A hypocrite has a very specific idea behind it, and it fits here. R.C. Sproul writes, quote, A hypocrite was a play actor in the theater. 
You've seen these people, they have these masks, right, in olden days, maybe on a stick, and they go through and they carry, or they put it on, and of course they put makeup on and a whole costume, the whole garb. He continues, a hypocrite was a play actor in the theater. When actors take on a role, they pretend to be someone they are not, unquote. What do you do for a living? I'm an actor. Oh, you're a pretender. What? You're a pretender. Yeah, yeah, I pretend to be something I'm not. You did such a good job of pretending, you get an award as the best pretender this year. You get an Academy Award. You're the best female pretender. What are they doing? Pretending. Don't raise your hand. Have you ever heard someone say, imply, one of the reasons they don't go to church because churches have hypocrites in them? In fact, they say it a little harsher than that, don't they? Churches are full of hypocrites. A couple of problems. One, they're right. That's one of the problems. Another problem is, are you implying that out there does not have hypocrites? Is that what you're implying? Do you really in your heart believe that the outside world has fewer hypocrites? Sproul writes, he says, The church, quote, is the only organization that I know of that requires an acknowledgement of sin to belong. To become a member of Graceview, you have to acknowledge you have a sin problem. You're a sinner. You say, I don't remember doing that. When do we do that? When like next week, when you get baptized, why do you get baptized? You say, I am a sinner that's been saved by the grace of God. I've done nothing to get my way to heaven. I am trusting only in Jesus Christ. But yes, I am a sinner. Well, then once you've acknowledged that, maybe those on the outside don't want to be in a church because that's to acknowledge that they're sinning. And so it's easier to go out there and pretend that they don't have a sin problem. At least those in the church, if they're being truly Christian, are saying, oh, I have a sin problem. I need mercy and grace. Something I want to make very clear, though, church is full of hypocrites. We do have a lot of hypocrites. So, Jeff, what church are you talking about? They're here this morning. I don't know. I don't know. The Lord knows, and maybe they know. But I want to be very, very clear. Follow my thought. Hypocrisy is not a Christian trying to live a life for Christ and occasionally sinning. And then they get up, and then they sin, and they get up, and they sin. That is not a hypocrite. See, you failed. See, you sinned. You're a hypocrite. I thought you was a Christian. You ever heard that? I, I thought you was a Christian. I've heard that a few times when I was a young person in my teens, and I was called to preach and made it known that I was called to preach a few times. And I thought you was a Christian. Thought you as a preacher. You think I'm going to be perfect? No, we acknowledge that we don't. That is not being a hypocrite. That is being a human being. That's just being a human being. We all fail, but we acknowledge this. Yes, that's why I'm in the church. So Sproul continues his quote and saying, A Christian is only a hypocrite if he says he does not sin. Hypocrisy, as said earlier, is pretending to be something you are not. Hypocrisy is pretending to be something you are not. So, Jeff, you said there's some hypocrisy in the church. Yes, let me give you two examples, all right? Number one, let's just suppose there's an unbeliever sitting here this morning, and there probably is, unsafe person. Now, I'm going to put you in two categories. There's an unsafe person who thinks they're a Christian. They really, in their heart, think they're a Christian, and the reason they believe they're going to heaven may be in their heart. They prayed a prayer, met a preacher, went down front one time, 
uh, kind of have some, some concept of Jesus paying for their sins, and they got baptized, and they're a member of a church, and they read their Bible, and they've stopped using bad words, and they try to be a good person and give, and that's why, okay, listen, if, you, if that describes your mindset, you are not a Christian, but you think you are. But here's another person who knows that they're not a Christian, but they slip into church. You say, Jeff, are we, do we not want unsaved people? No, we want unsaved people coming to Grace View and listening and studying, but we're asking... Do, for your own good, be honest. Be honest with yourself. Here is a hypocrite. A hypocrite is one who comes into a church and they end up being what Christ calls a tear among the wheat. So wheat represents true Christians who have substance to them. A tear is another stalky plant that looks a lot like wheat to the untrained eye, but if you open up the husk, there's no wheat inside. There's no real substance, but they're playing the game. They dress up, whatever that means, carry their Bible, however they do, come and maybe sing and maybe work their way onto the roll and maybe even serve in a position, but they're a tear among the wheat and it's going to be revealed one day that you were just pretending to be something you're really not. You were faking, you were playing a game, you were an actor. Here's another version of that. It's an unsaved person who is a wolf in the church with sheep's clothing. Again, acts like a Christian but their purpose in the church is to do damage. And so when there's strife and friction in the church, they don't get it right because they're a wolf in sheep's clothing that's ready to just tear apart the house of God. That's a wolf in sheep. You're a pretender. Stop pretending. Go ahead and admit, I'm not a Christian. Keep coming and listen. But you, you do yourself and us a favor by just saying, oh, I'll tell you straight up, I'm not a Christian yet, but I'm really thinking about it. Would you pray for me? Absolutely. And when you're ready to talk about it and receive Christ, can we help you? Maybe it'll happen right there in your seat one day. That's hypocrisy. So, Jeff, do Christians commit hypocrisy? Oh, absolutely. To our text, here's what it looks like. You ready? Here's what it looks like. Jeff, why is it such a big deal that we announce our giving? What's the problem with announcing our giving? Believers are hypocritical. Catch it. When we do something, an action to appear that we love people. Here, right here, let me give to that. Christian is, a Christian's hypocritical when we take an action to appear that we love God. Oh, look how much they love God. Look how they talk to the Lord in prayer. We're hypocritical when we take an action to try to look like we need God. Lord, I need less of me and more of you, and so we go into a fasting phase of life. Oh, look how holy and godly. We're hypocritical when we take action to look like we love people, look like we love God, look like we need God, but in reality, we're using these good actions to actually stir up people's affection and attention and praise of us by using a good action. That's being hypocritical. Well, you don't really love people. What you really love is yourself using a good action to draw attention to yourself. That's being hypocritical. So, talking about giving. Here's how not to give. Don't give with the wrong motive of hoping you'll get noticed and praised. So I ask all who have given and all who will give, check your heart right here. If no one on earth would ever know that you gave, would you still give in the same way? Ask yourself, if no one on earth, no human being would ever know, I hope I don't regret saying this, Surely no one gives for this reason. I'm not worthy of it, I'll promise you. 
but I've been here three years, two months, so if you added up all the times that I've asked Renee to see either a piece of paper or a screen that shows the breakdown of who gives what, if you added each of those up, you would come up with zero times. I never, I, I hope that never happens. I've never once said, Renee, can I kind of see the breakdown who gives, not once, I don't know who gives what. I really don't. And if you're sitting there going, well, what have I been given for? If you've been given for that reason, man, I'm sorry for you. You fall right into the throes of what this passage is talking about. You've been just doing it for the wrong reason. Thank you for your contribution, by the way. <laughs> but you have no reward. That's just a fact. If you're taking notes, write this down. Giving for praise of men has no reward from God. That's what verse 2 leads us to. Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward, reward again, past tense. Giving for the praise of men has no reward from God. What it means is, apparently, I think, I don't know if Jesus is saying this strongly or with a disappointed tone. Apparently, I, I think his heart is this. You just blew an opportunity. Check your heart. Why did you do it? You did a great thing. Why did you do it for that reason? You just blew an opportunity. Now you're going to get no reward from the Father. Why? Because you've already received. Here's, here's literally what the, the phrase means. You've already received all that you're going to get. So there will be no standing before the Lord one day. Um, hold on, Lord. <laughs> not done yet, right? Why not? What about all that I gave? What about it? I sacrificed. Maybe you did. It helped people. It did. But what's your point? How about a little recognition? How about some reward? You already had your reward. Listen, you're not being shortchanged. You got what you wanted. You wanted people to recognize you. That was your intent. And sometimes they did praise you for it. You got what you wanted. You get nothing else. That's it. Nothing else. You got a reputation, kind person, generous person, but that's all you get. One other thought to be very clear. I did this on the first point. I want to do it again. Be clear in this text, verse number 2. So catch this. Please hear this. This does not mean that if your gift is discovered and praised that you've automatically forfeited your reward. It does not mean that. What it means is if in your heart of hearts your intention was to gain the praise of men, then yes, you have forfeited God's reward. You have canceled out God's reward because you chose man's reward, man's praise. You can't have it both ways. And so it's one or the other. Why did you give? The action is the exact same. The key is why. So it's not saying, oh, man, someone had discovered it, and then they turned around and thanked me for it. Ah, you just cost me. No, they didn't. Your heart hopefully stays the same. Careful how much you enjoy the praise. Try to shut it down as quick as you can. Number three. So number one, we have this broad, general warning against hypocrisy. Number two, we have this warning very specifically how not to give. Obviously, verse three is the counterpart to that or the amendment to that instruction on how to give properly. Verse three, and really the first part of verse four, how to give properly. Now look back at verse three again. So don't do verse two, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Not in your notes, but just so that we're clear. Everybody, everybody understand this? What's, Jeff, what's the proper way to give? Give in secret. 
for the praise and glory of God and to help a need. There's your motive. That's how given secret, motivated for the glory of God to meet a need. And then we're going to finish with another motive that Christ is going to offer that is a good motive. It's not to be the main motive, but he's going to offer another motive. Here it is again. Given secrecy for the glory of God to help meet a need. Guys, you know what's going to happen? We're going to get to heaven one day and we're going to find out there were many people who did exactly that. They gave often and they gave at a level that was sacrificial and they met a lot of needs and they never announced it and no one knew that that was happening. And when we get to heaven, they're going to be rewarded. It's going to be great for them. So real quick, I want to insert this in verse number three. It says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jeff, go back to the point where significant contributions are announced. Is it right or wrong? Can I insert my opinion? This is my opinion. I do not believe that the t- today's text, my opinion, I don't believe it is calling for 100% of the time all giving to be completely anonymous. Not, I don't think it's calling for that 100% of the time completely to be anonymous. You're like, why not? Because I do think it is possible for a person to give in such a way, again, the heart's the key, it is possible to give in such a way that you're doing it to use influence that you may have to encourage other people to follow your example. Maybe someone sees a cause at a college, gives toward it, and they know that it will be leaked out, but their motive is not that they'll be praised. It's honestly that, you know what, hey, I did this. Who's with me? Is this a good cause? Maybe it's Christian radio. Who's with me? I'm telling you, somebody could. It's dangerous, but they could in their heart of hearts. Can I tell you who I'm mainly thinking of? Here's who I'm mainly thinking of. Jeff, don't you think I should always be 100% anonymous? So our, like, first through fifth graders stay with us through the singing and through the offering, and I kind of like that. And then they go out, and they get preaching on their level. Now, there's differences of opinion of that in our county, but that's one of the things that we do here. I think, it, my opinion, it is perfectly fine if a parent lets their child see them giving. Their heart is for the glory of God to help meet a need and some other motives that we're getting ready to talk about in just a moment. But it's not a bad motive if they're using their influence and their kids grow up knowing mom and dad get paid every week or mom and dad get paid every other week or mom and dad get paid once a month. All I know is when they get paid, they give. They give to the Lord. And you're using that as an influence. That's your true heart's motivation. I think that's very possible. And I don't think this text negates that. Out on the street, all the kids know is when mom and dad sees a need, they're as generous as they can be to that. And it kind of rubs off on, kids, you going to follow my lead? It may not even always be financially given. It may be a skill. And someone has a skill, and they're in a set of people that have that same skill. And, hey, 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 we need to help do this. I'm going to do it. You guys with me? You're going to use, you have the same skill as I do. You're going to get behind me. We need to help meet this cause. Nothing vainglorious about that. It's, we need to help meet. I'm going to do it. Are you with me? Follow my example. Go with me if you would. Mark 12. Mark 12. So now, what is the proper way to give? So I'm now stepping away from the text, obviously, and this is not all-encompassing. It's just going to be a quick hitter. Something to add into what we're talking about this morning. I'm going to propose there are two main factors in proper giving. So check our hearts. This is what I honestly believe. Jeff, what do you think are are a couple of main factors? We've been hitting on some. We've seen some don'ts. Here's a couple of do's. Here I think are the main, couple of main things. You ready? Your level of sacrifice. Check that. 
That's a good gauge of proper giving. What was the level of sacrifice? You say, right, the amount given. No, no, no. Level of sacrifice. Second, what was your level of joy in giving? When you give, was it duty? Was it enduring guilt? Or was it, Lord, thank you for blessing me with this. I am so glad to be able to give. And it's sacrificial and it is joyous, truly joyous. Mark chapter 12, look at verse 41. This is Jesus, and he sat down opposite the treasury. He's in the temple. Let this sink in. A couple of days, just a couple of days before he will die on a cross. It's that week. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. So Jesus is just people watching. And the disciples are apparently around nearby doing their thing. Maybe they're people watching, talking, chatting, whatever happened. He sat down opposite the treasure and he watched, watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And he's watching. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples. Hey, guys, guys, come here. Come here. He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, which one? You see the woman over by there wearing the, yeah. He called his disciples, said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She gave more than all of them. I actually had to stop because this text is not my message this week because I'm in Matthew, right? I've got, enough, I've got my hands full of Matthew. I don't need to get bogged down in Mark, but I read this a few times, and all of a sudden some things, and finally I was like, stop reading. You're going to take too long in today's message. But as I read this, did you guys notice something? What do you see about the word box? Look at verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. It is singular, right? Apparently, I read this just this week, Josiah makes these boxes. Israel had gotten slack on offering money for the repairs of the temple. Maybe that's this box. So there's a box people are putting. Notice again, verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasure and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Many large box. You know what that tells me? I, don't, I may not be right on this, but if there's one box and there's many people given to the box, then there's probably formed a line. They didn't have dollar bills, paper like we would have. This would be metal. And so I'm picturing this poor widow standing in this line headed toward one single box unknowing that Jesus is over here. And what is she hearing? Clink, 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 clink. Heavy. That sounds like gold. Clink, 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 clink. Oh, that sounds like silver. And then some apparently it's... That's probably thousands of dollars. Absolutely, thousands of dollars. If my ESV note here says that it's one, what she gave, these two copper coins that are small, are one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius is an average day laborer's one sixty-fourth of his day labor in America. Let's just say an average day labor. You go hire somebody off the street. You want them to rake your leaves in a few weeks. You say, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you'll work for me for the day. Just, just labor, no real skill. Give you a hundred bucks. One sixty-fourth of that is like a dollar fifty-six cents. So she's hearing gold. Bang, 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 bang. And then she's got two small copper 
coins. I'm wondering if in her mind as she's going, they don't need what I've got. This is nothing. This is nothing. But Jesus is watching. He's watching the whole thing. And this woman, this woman gave all. And so the Lord hit me with that this week. And if you're here this morning, you're thinking, I only have a little. A little, when sacrificial, is a lot. A little, when it's sacrificial, is a lot. This woman gave everything she had to live on, left herself nothing. I'm not saying you need to follow that. Jesus is not commanding. Everybody needs to go give all that you have. He's not commanding all of us. He's using this woman as an example. Therefore, I'm concluding that no Christian, at least in America, at least here, would be saying, oh, I am exempt from giving. The Lord knows I'm the needy person. Surely there are times where you have and you give and you don't tell yourself, my dollar fifty-six cents is nothing. I know others give. The Lord's watching all of our hearts. It's not as much about the amount. It's about the heart. Christ was about to give his all contribution. Hers was a little in our mind. Lord, she did not give more. She gave much less. No, she gave more. Christ is going to give his all contribution, which is much, which is most. And it met the need. And she's blessed and recorded in the word of God because she gave everything she had. $1.56. Piper writes, her giving was not more in quantity, but more in sacrifice. The reason for this is that sacrifice is a better measure of where your heart is. Amount does not tell the whole story about heart. So I stopped the quote a while ago with the words, where your heart is. So if I could finish this thought, her giving cost her more, left her with less. And so what Christ is trying to teach us, proper giving is motivated to meet needs joyfully for the glory of God. One last thought from verse 3, and then we'll finish back in Matthew, five, Matthew 6. One more thought out of verse 3. Would you look at it one more time very quickly? But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Everybody with me? Ready? Obviously, this is reiterating again, don't tell people what you give. But did you notice this? It's your left hand. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand. So, okay, don't tell other people. Got it. Is there more? Yes. Jesus is also implying that we ourselves, who's doing the giving, we're not consumed with the amount of our giving. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's over here doing. You say, my brain knows full well. I think the point is it's a saying that is unique to Christ. Don't you be consumed with your own giving. Hey, real quick, I'm going to ask you. Don't answer out loud. You ready? Do you know what you have given to the Lord or to needy people this year? I'm talking about 2019. I'm not talking about 2018 because I know some of you are cursed with such a, a, a good memory and you're cursed with such a mathematical mind. You say, I actually, oh, if you hadn't just said that, I, I now have a figure. I know how much we gave last year, just did my taxes back in April. I know. I'm not talking about then. Do you know what you have given this year? I hope you're going, I have no clue what we've given this year. Because if you're going, oh, yes, in April I gave this and this amount of money and X amount of cents to that, and in June I gave that amount of money, and I remember I gave, and, if, and I have, you keep a running tally in your mind, what are you doing? I hope no one's sitting and going, oh, I know down to pretty much within 
10, 20, 100 dollars what I've given this year. I keep a running count. Why? You're trying to bolster up pride. What he's calling for is don't you worry about what your amount, what your tally is. You just keep giving because we're trusting there is someone who matters a lot more. They are keeping account of what you're giving. By the way, at the end of the year, then you add it all up. And if you want to claim it on your taxes, I know some people say, I don't want to claim it on my taxes. I don't want to, you know, don't want to have a wrong motive. Others say, I think it's wise to do that because if, we, if they're going to give us a break, we need to use the break. It's more to give back to the Lord and feed the family. I'm kind of in that second group myself. But we could debate about that all day long. I'm talking about don't go through the year keeping a, ca- a tab and rounding, not, not rounding off, but down to the penny. Stop. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And then lastly, number four. Christ gives us an assurance of reward from God. An assurance of reward from God. So we'll be a few weeks getting to these other verses. All right? Already handed, we're going to take a break next week, I think, from Matthew. Look at verse 4, the last sentence. Just very quick, if you have your, it won't be on the screen, but if you have your Bible in front of you, I think Jesus is trying to make a point. Look at verse 4, last sentence. And your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you. You see that? Skip down to verse number 6. See verse 6. Look at the end of verse 6. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Skip down to verse number 18. Last sentence, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Three times Jesus finishes with the exact same sentence. What he's trying to say, hey, your father who's in heaven, who sees all things, will reward you if you're doing it for the right reason. Did you give for the right reason? Did you pray the right way for the right reason? Are you fasting for the right reason? Did you do it all? Then your father who sees in heaven, who sees in the secret place, he will reward you. Here's what I think Christ is trying to get us. Can I say very simple sentences? There really is a God. He sees everything. And he always rewards acts of righteousness and godly living that springs from a heart that has a pure motive. Always rewards it. And so as I was reading this this week, it occurs to me, very simple statement. Jesus, Christian, Jesus wants the best for you. Christ is saying, I want the best for you. And as the only one qualified to do this, here's what he's saying. You are going to have to take my word for it. I want the best for you. Do not settle for less. My Father's reward is so much better than the praise of men. Do not settle for the praise of men. Push that out and give for the glory of God and to meet people's need. Give joyously. Give sacrificially. I'm telling you, you're going to love it if you do this. I'm trying to help you. Will you listen? what Christ is saying back in chapter 5 there was a part of the text that I struggled with it's this whole word reward I'm going to tell you I struggle with that I believe firmly in what's called the depravity of man and the grace of God and I've come to this conclusion that anything God gives us is grace and is undeserved and so here comes Jesus and he starts again within just two chapters using this idea of reward I struggle with that I mean I really struggle with that And so, Lord, help me this week. This may mean nothing to you. It helps me. God, you don't owe us reward. That's not the right motive we should do because we love you. We owe you. What are you talking about reward? And so the Lord gave me this thought. Reward is not a debt God owes. It is an offer that he makes. And that's different. Very subtle. May not help you. But in my mind, Jeff, don't struggle with what Jesus is saying. MacArthur is right when he says the following. It is, Grace, for you listening? 
It is neither selfish nor unscriptural to do the Lord's work for a motive that he himself gives. Is reward a good motive? Is it an acceptable motive? Absolutely, he's offering it. So give and pray and fast in anticipation of a reward. It's not God paying, ah, you owe me now. No, it's not a debt. I make an offer. If you'll do it for the right reason, my Heavenly Father will reward you. Now here's the thing. Nowhere in the text does it say when God will reward. It doesn't say how God will, will reward. It does not say how much God will give us in a reward. Everybody with me? doesn't say when. Jeff, do you think it's in this life? It could be in this life. It could be in the next life. It doesn't say how. So do you think if we do something financial that we get it back financial? It very well may be financial, but it may be physical. And I promise you, you get in a pinch, physical outranks financial. It may be spiritual. It may be relational. It may, may be emotional, psychologically. It may be direct. Look, I did this, all I know is this started coming in. It may be indirect. You do this, and all of a sudden you're like, well, the Lord, you haven't done anything. And the Lord's like, yeah, have you ever noticed that car that you drive, everybody else that has the same model, has put like thousands and thousands of dollars into theirs, and you haven't? You ever figured that out? It may be indirectly. So again, all he's saying is, my Father's going to reward if you do it for the right reason. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Maybe here, maybe there. I think it's both. 2 Corinthians alludes to both. Back to chapter 5, very quickly, verse 12. Just verse 12. I think that's a clue, along with verse 1 of chapter 6, that the majority of this reward is in the next life. Jesus is talking to those who've been persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're reviled, persecuted. People hate them, utter all kinds of evil against them. Do you see what Jesus says in verse 12 to these people? Rejoice. What? I'm not rejoicing. I'm being persecuted. Bless their hearts, guys. And I've thought about it, and I'm not trying to be too critical because I'm not in their shoes. Every now and then, I'll see these things. I'll go to my phone. I'm going to check out Tar Heel Times. And lo and behold, there's Google offers these other things that are happening. Every now and then, bless their hearts, I see these Hollywood people that want to be Christian, and they'll kind of ease out and do something Christian and make it public, and then they get blasted, and they come out with an apology. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I offended y'all. I went over here and I got baptized in the Jordan River and I made these good claims about Israel. What are you doing saying good things about Israel? You're bad. And so what do they do? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I shouldn't have said that. I know I've offended people. Hey, if it's true, it's good. Don't, don't apologize for truth. But I'm not in their world. But they, you know, That's a form of persecution. They're feeling it. You know what Jesus says? Well, they may never give me another role in a, in, a, in, a, in a movie. It's going to cost me my career. Jesus says in verse number 12, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. I like the word great. When Jesus says something is great, you mark it down, it is great. How great? Great enough that Jesus calls it great. That's pretty good. Back to chapter 6. Actually, if you would, join me. Proverbs. 11. I'm going to hit three passages very fast and we'll be done. Proverbs 11. As you're turning there, remembering our thought, Jesus is giving us an assurance of reward from God. An assurance of reward 
from God. I'm going to make the one more simple statement, but I want you to feel it. It's so simple. It really is true. Our eternal existence largely is affected by these very brief earthly lives. I'm not talking what you do gets you to heaven. I'm talking about once you've put your faith and trust in Christ, literally, guys, how you live these very extremely temporary lives will have a great effect on eternity. And we miss that all the time because we're always looking at now. I want people to praise me. If you could see eternity, you'd be like, I don't, I don't want you to know that I'm doing this because I want the Lord to reward because his reward is great. Oh, to live by faith while we can. Givers, oh, to live by faith while we can. Proverbs chapter 11. Look at verse number 24 and 25. One gives freely. Well, they're a giver. Yet grows all the richer. What? Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And one who waters will himself be watered. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 6 and 7. This literally is in a context where Paul is sending some brothers ahead down to Corinth. He's from another, in another place. He's in Macedonia. He's riding down to South Greece. He's in northern Greece. He's saying, go ahead. I'm sending on down there so that this offering you've been collected, go ahead and get it all gathered together so that when we get there, it's not an, a, not an exaction. It's not something that you're having to scrounge around and pull together. And you end up being embarrassed because I've been bragging how much you Corinthians are going to give. So watch what he says in verse 6. I'm not going to comment. Just read. The point is this. Here's the point. Whoever sows sparingly. He's talking about offering. There I go commenting. Verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly. Or under compulsion. You don't let Jeff talk you into it. For God loves a cheerful giver. What's your level of sacrifice? What's your level of joy? Paul, through the Holy Spirit, saying, You give a lot, you're going to reap a lot. You sow just a little, you're going to reap just a little. Point being, you can't outgive God. Y'all know that sentence. You cannot outgive God, it is not possible. For you to outgive God. He has more resources. He said, what if I up the ante? And what if I give this sacrificially? You do it for the right reason. And your reward will be great in heaven. My last thought this morning is First Chronicles. It's Old Testament. 28 verse 9. You'll see it on the screen. The scene is that King David is passing the baton to Solomon, his son. He's called all the bigwigs in Israel together. Everyone's going to see this public changing of the guard. Watch what he tells his son Solomon. And you, Solomon, my son, David's a great man. Solomon ended up being a great man who didn't finish well. Not quite the man his dad was. Still a great man. Verse 9, and you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Know my God and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Here's why. 
For the Lord, Grace, if you hear this, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Solomon, if you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll cast you off forever. Know my God, serve my God. Why? Because he's, and do it with a willing mind and your whole heart. Because he searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. You know what I realize? I'm talking to a pretty mature group of Christians. Most of you, frankly, you're too well taught biblically to put on the show. You're like, yeah, I've learned don't put on a show when giving. Here's what I'm asking you. Check your heart. You're like, I wouldn't give showfully. In your heart, is there something there that like, I do wish some people would find out about it. I hope so-and-so knows how much I've given. If that is you, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I would encourage you, if you're checking your heart, like, man, sometimes I do these acts of righteousness. I pray and I want people to hear and think highly of me or I want people to know that I'm fasting or I, I want people to know how much I've given and who I've given to and how often I give and I want to be known as kind and generous. Ask God, Lord, I'm confessing my sin. I need a brand new heart because this one's got some serious problems with pride. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Just for a moment. We'll pray in a moment. So I want to ask you. Let's talk general for, first of all. Is there anyone here that you in your heart, don't raise your hand, just deal with the Lord. You'd say, the Lord convicted me not as much on the giving but on the serving in a public way. I think too much about the praise of people. I want people to notice and to like and to say nice things. And it kind of, it consumes me. Confess that to the Lord. Claiming 1 John 1, 9, God, I'm sinful in this. I've lost my reward. I don't want to do that anymore. God, I want my service to be to further your kingdom. I want it to be for your glory. And Lord, I, I do want the reward of the Father. Second person, you're a Christian, can I ask you this? Don't, nothing, I'm not even looking. I'm just asking you. As you bring the Lord into focus, is there anyone here this morning that the Lord is convicting you because you don't give? He just says, when you give, when you give, you're giving. He assumes his people will be, he's a great giving Savior. You would think his followers would be giving people, and yet there you don't give. Always the receiver. Or maybe you give, but the Lord's convicting you, I don't give enough. Confess it to the Lord and ask the Lord, give you a new heart. Do that right now, you and the Lord. God, I need a new heart. Make mine more like Christ. Lord, give me some of what that widow had. And again, if anyone's been giving for the wrong motive, praying for the wrong motive, religious acts for the wrong motive, Father, would you forgive us? Father, I pray for this group of people. Very simple, straightforward text today. Thank you for it. Thank you for Jesus. God, we're very needy. We're very, very needy. I thank you, Lord, long before this message took place that you were encountering people in this house. And just want to say thank you because we asked for that and you met that need. God, we got people struggling with physical things, relationships. Some are struggling with finances. It's tearing them apart on the inside. Don't know where they're going to find the money. 
Lord, some are struggling spiritually. Don't even want to get right. So, Lord, we're a very needy people. So I thank you for each one that you spoke to through your word. And I pray that you would let it be powerful and your Holy Spirit change us through the word. We ask it in Christ's name.